Have you ever had a change of opinion about someone or something after you heard the backstory to your experience of that person or that place? So maybe it's a coworker that you met who came off as really troublesome and rough around the edges, and then you learned their backstory, that they actually had a really troubled life in, in your move to have compassion on them. Or perhaps you had an experience with an institution that at first seemed really, really positive, but then you learned the backstory and saw the dark underbelly of that institution and you no longer had any respect for them. Well, I think all of us have had that experience of hearing a story and having our opinion shaped by that story as it interprets our experiences. So right now, I am on a bit of a a binging on true crime podcasts. And whether it's something like The Dropout, the story of Elizabeth Holmes, or these stories where people marry complete fraudsters, there's this common theme that as soon as someone starts to get suspicious, the fraudulent person can weave a miraculous story that somehow makes everything make sense. Even though from the outside, it is completely bogus, the story changes your interpretation of an experience. The reality is that we're all telling ourselves stories all of the time to shape our interpretations of our experiences. This guy, Richard Holloway, who opens his book called The Stories We Tell Ourselves with These Words, he writes, whether we acknowledge it or not, we all live by the stories we tell ourselves to explain the mystery of our existence, the suffering that accompanies it, and the certain death that concludes it. But our stories do more than offer us explanations for the mystery of existence. They also supply us with the rules for living the lives we have been thrust into. The difficulty is in identifying the story we are actually living by. And I think he's on to something here. He's saying we're interpreting the experiences of our lives based on the stories that we tell ourselves. The challenge is recognizing the stories we're actually living by regardless of the formal stories that we adopt. In virtually every religion and philosophical system is a collection of stories that interprets our existence and experience of life. And when these stories are brought together, we might call them something like a meta-narrative or a worldview, so that when we experience something, we interpret it according to that worldview. So in other words, we're always working to interpret our experiences of happiness and of hardship and to assign meaning to those experiences by integrating them into a larger story that makes sense of our lives. I don't mean simply a fictional story, though the story could be a fiction. I'm trying to say that we construct a framework based on a narrative that explains the experiences of our lives. You notice when you try to explain what really happened or what's actually going on, it's going to be framed within a larger story. Well, the Christian faith is, in a sense, a larger story that explains every aspect of our life and existence, and this story is in competition with other comprehensive stories. And the Bible is the account of the Christian story. That This is where we get our overarching story and narrative. So Christians are given this story to live by. I would suggest in particular that story comes in the form of the four gospel narratives. These are stories that explain what God is doing in the world 
in Jesus Christ. So the story of King Jesus in the restoration of the kingdom of God on earth. But they don't just explain what God is doing. They also give us a way to live. They give us rules to live by. And in fact, I want to say that becoming a Christian really involves abandoning all competing stories to the Christian story. It's leaving every other explanation of life and existence behind and grabbing on to the story of Jesus. And if you identify as a Christian today, you've probably done that. You're saying, I'm interpreting my life in light of the story of Jesus. But the problem, as Holloway points out, is that very often we're unaware of the story that we're actually living by. We might have formally adopted the Christian story, but we start to tell ourselves alternative stories and we interpret our life and experiences in that way. So we are then helped by James's letter as he calls us to consistently and self-consciously interpret the experiences of our lives in light of the Jesus story, in light of the gospel message. And he doesn't want us just to grab onto bits of that story and fit them into our life where it seems convenient, but he wants us to enter fully into that story so that we integrate ourselves into it instead of trying to integrate the story into ourselves. More pointedly, in the text before us this morning, James is going to identify a false story, a story that competes with the Christian and gospel story that attempts to explain our suffering and experience of life. So when he starts out in verse 13, saying that no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, he's identifying a false narrative that's intended to explain suffering. So James will identify a false narrative, and he'll give us the true narrative. But I'm spending a good time, amount of time trying to describe what James is doing instead of just looking at what James says because I think he gives us an example of what it means to be a Christian disciple. To be a Christian disciple is to identify false narratives that incorrectly interpret our experiences and replace it with the true narrative that gives us a proper interpretation of our experiences. So when we interpret the Bible, we definitely need to pay attention to what a text says, but we also need to pay attention to what an author is doing with that text. And in this text, James is exposing a false story and giving us a true story. This is a way of discipleship. We could call it narratival discipleship if we wanted or something like that. But ultimately, it's a form of discipleship that rejects false stories and replaces them with the true story. Because this is what the gospel writers did. And in their story about Jesus, we find a Jesus who gives stories. The, the Christian faith is deeply embedded in narrative. We need the right narratives that govern our lives. I want to give a caution here. Um, as we try to adopt the Christian story and enter into it, I think that we can sometimes try to boil down the gospel story to its bare component parts, and it is no longer sufficient for our all-of-life experiences. So what I'm trying to say here is that there are many veins of Christianity that tell the gospel story as a story that primarily explains what will happen to you after you die. And somewhat subtly, they suggest that the gospel story has nothing to explain about your experience of life now. 
So if we try to disciple ourselves with a story that's only about the escape from hell and entry into heaven at death, then we're going to disciple ourselves with a truncated story, a story that can't account for our experiences now. So I want to suggest, and we'll look at this more later, that the story James is going to give us is not a story that's primarily about leaving earth at death, but about the establishment of God's kingdom on earth. It's not about escaping to heaven, but about bringing heaven to bear in our lives in the here and now. So this is what James is doing. He's showing us how to grab onto the gospel story for all of life. But then second, I'm spending a significant amount of time articulating what James is doing because he is writing a general letter. And if we grab onto this text and think that we can just repeat these words, it's not going to be good enough. He's communicating in an abbreviated fashion, and we can tend to miss some things because it's a really distilled message. So, for example, when we start talking about the problem of sin inside of us, we could start talking about it in a very abrasive way, missing the fact that this is the first time when James starts to address his readers as beloved. So he's infusing his correction with warmth and affection, and because it's in a letter, we might miss it if we don't slow down and grab onto it. And then when we try to do the same thing, we might jettison the love and affection that fills James's warning and just give a warning in a way that is missing all compassion. So we need to recognize he's giving a, an abbreviated way of doing this. More than that, as James is identifying a false story to explain suffering and hardship, he's just identifying one of any number of false stories that we might adopt. So it's not if, if he's saying anyone who's going through hardship and suffering is either saying that God is at fault here or they're walking in the way of wisdom. No, there are lots of wrong interpretations of our experiences of life. Here's just one. That's why I think it's a good example for us. It's not the definitive and final word. So what James does in generalities, we need to do with specificity as we engage one another in our particular circumstances. So having said all that, let's turn our attention to the text. Backing up to verse 12, James gives a story about what suffering and trials do in the Christian life. When they're embraced with faithful endurance, they result in the crown, which is life, that God has promised to those who love him. That's the right interpretation of suffering and hardship and trial. God is kindly at work in it. But he shifts very markedly towards a negative instruction when he says in verse 13, no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. Here it is that James starts to point out a wrong story. He suggests that those who pinpoint God as the ultimate source of hardship and trial, and even worse, that God has evil intentions in hardship and trial, he points this out as a controlling story that misinterprets trials and hardship. There are essentially two movements in this passage. This first one is identifying the wrong story, The second movement is replacing it with the right story. So let's begin by thinking about this false story that pinpoints God as the origin points for trials. 
James is concerned that his readers will not consciously or unconsciously blame God for their experience of trials. So in this story, there's a first act. The first act is that God is the originator of hardship and trial. It's a, really a false story about God's sovereignty. James points out that we all have an inclination, perhaps, to identify God as the source of hardship in our life. And in fact, I think wherever there are people who worship a God or multiple gods, there's an inclination to pin, pinpoint that deity as the source of hardship. So, for example, in Homer's Odyssey, Zeus, this god, complains about humans, and he says this. It is incredible how easily human beings blame the gods and believe us to be the source of their troubles when it is their own wickedness and stupidity that brings upon them sorrows more severe than any which destiny could assign. So in other words, this Greek god is saying that the majority of human hardship is really a mess of humanity's own making. It has nothing to do with destiny or fate or the gods. It's just people being people and doing dumb things that result in hard circumstances. But what Homer explains in the Odyssey, in this fictional account, the biblical authors explain in Proverbs 19.3 in this way. It says, A person's own foolishness leads him astray, yet his heart rages against the Lord. So the point is, people act foolishly, and they find themselves in hard circumstances, and then they blame God for the hard, hard circumstances. They act as if God is at fault, that they're experiencing trial and hardship. Well, that's what James is addressing in verse 13. Now, I don't think it's very difficult for us to understand how it is that we come to assign blame for God or blame on God for the presence of trials in our lives. After all, we might reason God is God. He can make anything happen. He can stop anything from happening. So the logic goes that if God is able to do whatever he wants— well, then he must not be a very good God because I'm experiencing bad things, and those bad things are ultimately connected to the all-powerful God. And then this kind of thinking is reinforced in our attempts to wrestle with the doctrine of salvation and the beauty of God's electing grace as we construct theological systems that lend themselves to identifying God as the cause of all things. Now, this is complicated, I don't want to try to talk about sovereignty and human responsibility in our time this morning, but I do want to suggest that we can grab onto right truths about God's sovereignty and ultimately deeply misunderstand it in the daily events of our lives. I think this is what James is pointing out here. Perhaps he's addressing confusion about the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples where they asked God not to lead them into temptation. Perhaps he's just drawing on a larger tradition where individuals were tempted to blame God for their hardship. Whatever the case might be, James want to, wants to make clear that is a wrong interpretation of the events of your lives. That is a false story. You need to reject it. He's going to go on to say in verse 14 that ultimately these hardships are a result of our own sinful desires, our own sinful actions. They ultimately result in death, not death like physically or eternal death, but in breaking of death into this life that we call hardship and trial. Talk 
more on that later. But I think in practice then, we need to come to recognize that many of the hardships and trials that we experience as individuals in our marriages, in parenting, in family relationships, in the workplace, in virtually every sphere of life, I would suggest that the majority of our hardships and trials are a direct result of our failure to walk in the way of wisdom. They're a result of our failure to live according to God's design. We try to take things into our own hands, pursue our own agenda, and we find ourselves in a really tough place. I think if you start to examine your life, really, you have to take responsibility for a lot of the hardship that is there. So I want to say that tenderly and compassionately because we also understand that we do encounter hardship and trial that has nothing to do with anything we did. Whether that's a cancer diagnosis or a chronic illness or the death of a loved one, very often we do run into hardships that have nothing to do with our sin or evil desires. Very often there are multiple factors that create the hardship. Multiple people are involved, so we say it takes two to tango, right? Um, So it's sometimes not just us, but I think more often than not, we're inclined to deflect responsibility from ourselves and put it on God or other people instead of taking responsibility and pursuing a wise course of action in response. James's point here is simply that you shouldn't blame God. You should instead start by looking inward and understanding the part you have had to play in the formation of the hardship you're experiencing. So if act one of this false story is a misunderstanding of God's sovereignty that assigns blame to him for the presence of the trial, then act two of the false story is a blaming of God for your actions of sin during the time of trial. And really, I think this is a false story about God's goodness, suggesting not only that God has brought the hardship about, but that God is trying to trip you up. He's trying to ensnare you in sin so that he can judge you and blame you for doing what is wrong. This is a story that's as old as time, isn't it? It's Adam in the garden when he's confronted for his sinful action, and he blames God for giving him a wife that caused him to commit that sin. We're always looking to blame others for our sin, and in blaming others, we're subtly and somewhat passive-aggressively blaming God for trying to trip us up. We might not be as explicit as Adam was when we blame God for our actions, I think a good warning sign is that whenever we start to excuse our sin or pass the blame onto someone else, saying things like, I never would have done that if they didn't make me, then we're in danger of blaming God for causing us to sin. Other times, we do directly blame God for sin when we say things like, if God hadn't made me this way, or if God didn't put me in this family, Or if God didn't put this in my life, we subtly, with religious language, begin to blame God for our sinful responses to trial and hardship. James quickly corrects us. He says that God cannot be tempted with evil, and he doesn't tempt anyone with evil. God is not out to get you. He is not out to entrap you. He is not out to snare you with sin. James says we do a good enough job of that on our own. So ultimately, we need to look inward and recognize our own sinful desires and actions and own up to it. 
not God who is at fault. Now, I want to speak to those who are here, perhaps, and experiencing deep hardship and suffering, and, and you can't do anything but blame God, it seems. Where hardship has confronted you, something bad has happened completely out of your control, and you just can't get over thinking things like this. That God is not good. That he doesn't love me or this never would have happened. That the hardship I'm facing is because God is unkind and uncaring. He doesn't have my best interests in mind. I, I want to, with the tone of James, say that you are a beloved brother or sister in the Lord, but that the story you're telling yourself is a false story that will only lead you further down the road of hardship because it will only lead you further away from God. James corrects the story that God is not the bad guy. God is loving and kind, and he deeply cares about you. So I want to encourage you to grab onto that story. Start to examine the circumstances of your life in that story and lean into the warmth and affection of God's presence in your life despite the hardship you're facing. Don't reject him because of it. Hardships are real. They're difficult, but they don't negate God's love for you. This is what Josh was getting at in our Bible class lesson when he talked about the God who in love became flesh and suffered alongside of us. Emily Dickinson talks about the fact that there's only one prerequisite to empathizing with the sufferer, and that's that you've suffered yourself. Well, Jesus has met that. God has met that in Jesus Christ, and in it you can be assured of his love regardless of what you're facing. That's the true story that James is going to lean into in a moment. But he begins by identifying a false narrative false explanations about our experiences of hardship. God is not at fault. But then, in verse 14 and on, he starts to move to the true story. And the true story has two acts as well. And in Act 1, we learn the true story about ourselves. And in Act 2, we learn the true story about God. Well, here's the true story about ourselves in verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Now I want to caution you against reading these verses and trying to come up with a full theory about how sin works. Okay, so sometimes you'll hear people talk about how to you know, perfectly account for the exact progression of sin, or maybe even say, um, when you hit a certain point, you move from just being a broken person to a sinful person, or something like that. I want to suggest that James is not trying to articulate a full-born theology of sin. Instead, he's just creating a metaphor that's a birth metaphor that explains where the problem lies. So don't read into this metaphor too much, Um, But don't read into it too little either. I think what James is trying to tell us is that as we engage in this life, we primarily engage at the level of desire, and apart from the gift of God's 
transforming spirit and good wisdom, our desires are naturally inclined towards sinfulness. We We want what we want, and we don't care what God wants. And when we pursue what we want at the expense of what God wants, it brings about sin. And sin, when it develops and matures, gives birth to death. This stands in stark contrast to the opening of James's letter where he talks about endurance coming to full maturity, and that brings about wholeness and holiness. While our desires, apart from God, will always bring about sin and death, both in the short term and in the long term. Now, I want to clarify what James means by death here. If you've grown up in the church, you might automatically plug in meaning when the Bible starts talking about the fruit of something being life or death. So you might plug into the crown of life, something like living in heaven forever, and into this language of death that comes as a result of sin, um, eternity and hell forever, or something like that. But I think James is using these terms somewhat differently in this text. When he's talking about sin and death, I don't think he's primarily bringing to mind the idea of sin as something that happens on like a judicial level or in a bank account or uh, the breaking of a legal law or something to where when you commit an act of sin, it removes your eternal destiny from heaven to hell or something like that. His view isn't toward the end of your life and what happens after your death. That's not the kind of death he's talking about. Instead, I think he's talking about your experiences in this life. Now, throughout the book of James, he'll use these terms variously, sometimes talking about life and death in the present, sometimes talking about life and death after your physical, literal death. But here, he is not talking about sin that will send you to hell. He's talking about sin that brings hell and death into your present life. Manifestations of all that is broken. He's telling us a story that helps us understand our experience of life in this world. So when he starts talking about the sin that gives birth to death, I don't think you need to immediately think about the end times. You need to instead think about the daily experiences that you have where you sense brokenness in your life, where you see decay in your marriage, where you see hardship in your relationships. These are the manifestations of death that come as a result of sin and selfish desire. It's that level of death and that kind of death that James is addressing here. It's the kind of death that keeps you from participating in the already present kingdom of God in this world, but that also sets you on a trajectory away from the kingdom of God in the world to come. That's what James gets at in chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, when he encourages people that if you turn a brother or sister away from their deception and and they turn back, you've saved them from death. You've saved their soul from death. He's talking about it here in terms of the death we experience in our hardship and suffering. So in essence, what he's trying to do is to equip you to deal with the manifestations of death in this life. He's trying to equip you with a story that can bring healing and life into the present. Now, he turns our attention primarily to our inner self. 
our action of sin. He emphasizes our responsibility in the problems that we bring. He shows us that our worst desires are a breeding ground for sin and death that we experience. Connecting it to James chapter 5, where he encourages us to turn each other away from the error of our ways so that we don't experience our death, I think it's right for us to understand that in our story, we need help from the outside. We need God's help to turn us from these desires and from sinfulness, and we need the help of one another to show us when we've become deceived. So in verse 16, he tells us, don't be deceived. But we need one another to help us see when we've been deceived by our our own desires, when we've been caught up in our own sin, when we're bringing death into this world instead of life. We have a responsibility to one another to grow in relationships with each other in such a way that we can help each other see the true story. So it's like when a friend comes to you and gives you the backstory because you're missing information and you're living in a delusion. They're doing it with kindness. They're doing it with compassion, with your best interests in mind. And that's the calling that we have to one another, to tell each other the true story so that we won't live in deception and death. So how do we do that? Well, we grab onto it in Act 2 of the story, which is the true story of who God is and of his action in this world. In verse 17, the way to remove the deception, to correct the error of our ways, begins like this. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So notice that both of these acts are grounded in birth metaphors. Both of them are motivated by desire, one by sinful human desire, one by God's good desire. In the first metaphor, birth results in death. In this one, it results in life. So it's a different story, different outcome. It's a story that we ought to adopt to interpret our experiences of life. He begins by assuring us that God is good unchangeable. He gives good and perfect gifts. He's the father of lights. I think that's just a way of saying that God is the creator, the author of all that exists. But unlike the sun and the moon that cast shifting shadows, God is unchangingly good. He always shines the warmth of his love and affection on us. He's unchangeably good. He doesn't give good gifts one moment and then evil gifts the next. He does not entice us to holiness and beauty and goodness in one moment and then entice us to sin and brokenness and death in the next. God is always consistently, unchangingly, unhesitatingly good. This is a positive way of saying that God is not tempted by evil and does not tempt anyone with evil. So what does a good creating God do? Well, by his own will, it is his desire to act. He acts and he gives us birth by the word of truth. He gives life to his children, to Christians, by the word of truth, which I think we should understand as the message of Jesus, so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures, that we would have life, and that we would have it abundantly. 
So if God gives us birth by the word of his truth so that we'd be the kind of first fruits of his creatures, what does that mean? Well, I think that there are two pieces of this image of the first fruits. I think the first piece is that God gives us life of the eternal life quality that we don't wait to experience until after our death. God inserts eternal life into our present experience of life in this earth. We participate now in the kingdom of God. So it's like the first fruits in your garden. So I planted some basil seeds this year, and for whatever reason, one of the seeds sprouted like two weeks earlier than all the rest of the seeds, and that's my favorite plant. And I got to harvest fruit from fruit leaves from that plant before any of the others. I didn't have to wait until the fullness of the garden was restored, uh, we could say maybe in that metaphor. I got to partake in it now. Well, God makes us to be a kind of first fruits so that we experience new creation life in the present. But it's also a statement of hope that there's more to come. That what we experience in this life isn't everything. It's good, not great, maybe we would say. There's, there's more to come. So we experience the first that's a promise of a fuller harvest on the final day. So it's like the breath of Aslan in the winter of Narnia that sets spring into motion while snow is still melting. It unfreezes the first statues that are able to begin to sing the praises of Aslan even as he continues to unfreeze the rest of the statues. It's the start of a new creation work that doesn't wait till the fullness of the final day of Christ but begins already. It allows us to experience hardship with an infusion of joy. It allows us to experience suffering with the victory assured in Christ's resurrection. So I want to encourage you, as you experience your hardship, as you go through trials, tell this story to yourself over and over again. That because God gave Jesus Christ, who suffered and rose from the dead, is the firstborn from the dead, and promises eternal life to all, and brings it into our present experience, so too have we become born of God and experience the new life in the present already. So we don't interpret our experience of suffering and trial as the action of a vindictive evil God. Instead, we experience it as the birth pains that it is that will ultimately result in a new created order, in a resurrection like Christ, in life that will be absent from suffering and sorrow forevermore. When we start to interpret our experiences with that story, our suffering isn't meaningless. It's not empty. It brings order to our experiences, and it gives us a message of hope for those who are currently suffering without any hope at all. It gives us the path of discipleship. It gives us a calling to reject the false stories and to replace it with this true story of God and his work in the world. I think this is what James is bringing us to. Up to this point, This story primarily explains our experiences, and it gives us hope for the next chapter of this story. But as we continue into the book of James, it will also give us a way of life dictated by the story. So I would encourage you to begin reading James all the way through so that you can start to see what it means for you to live according to this new story. But the starting point is this. 
to rest with full assurance in the goodness and kindness of our God. Let's work towards that end together. Father, we thank you that you are good and kind, that you have made us your children by the word of truth, that you assure us of your love and affection in the midst of hardship and suffering, and that we can believe you because you have tasted of suffering in Jesus Christ. Would you guide us now? Would you help us help one another interpret our experiences properly? Would you allow us to enter into this story and live by it? In Christ we pray.